Good morning. How are y'all doing today? Awesome, awesome. Um, we always like to start every Sunday. If you're joining us here for the first time in our sanctuary, or if you're joining us online for the first time, we want to say welcome to all of you. We're so glad you're here to worship with us here at Hosanna. <clears throat> I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning we are going to be looking at Revelation chapter 17, or at least the first part, specifically at the one world religious system that will be present upon the earth during the tribulation period. It may surprise some of you to hear that there is coming in the future a great worldwide spiritual revival, but not the revival you might be thinking of. See, when I make that statement, I'm not referring to a Christian revival, which is, of course, we're praying for. We want to see Jesus just sweep the earth again and save lives. But in the end times, there's going to be a coming worldwide, worldwide religious revival that exalts man, that exalts man in his ways and minimizes God. It'll be the culmination of a trend that we see in the world today, a trend that has existed for a while, and it's a trend called humanism. Humanism is a word that refers to the exaltation of humanity, lifting up mankind's values, mankind's capacities, mankind's worth above everything, including God. Humanism exalts humanity above God. Humanity makes itself God. And humanism is what this is all about. It's expressed in thoughts that we hear today like, my truth, expressed in thoughts like, my expression, my way, my desire, what I want, my values. It's the idea that all of those things are number one, the greatest and only priority of life. And therefore, God's truth and God's expression, God's ways, God's desires, God's values, and so it's God's truth and God's expressions, everything that he is and he wants, his ways and desires, it's the idea that all that is God must conform to my will, must conform to my way. And if God's ways won't conform to my ways, well, then I will just create a faith that does. I will create a God of my own to worship that will. This trend, unfortunately, will continue and reach its fullest expression during the tribulation period. And so Revelation 17 and 18 detail the fall of a very specific thing, a place, an idea, an attitude called Babylon. The fall of Babylon has already been declared in Revelation in chapter 14, verse 8, and chapter 16, verse 19. But what we're going to see here is the fall of this thing called Babylon. Chronologically, as we've been studying through Revelation, we have reached the end of the tribulation period. That's what we saw in chapter 16. We came to the very end of the tribulation period as we saw the final judgment of the seventh bowl being poured out upon the earth. We saw during that seventh bowl where God said, it is done. And so the actual chronology of Revelation is going to pick back up in chapter 19 as we get to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But here in chapters 17 and 18, we have another one of these parentheticals. There have been times throughout the study of Revelation as we're studying through the chronology, and then there's a couple chapters where we say, okay, let's take a step back for a moment and look at something that's been happening in the chronology in more detail. 
And that's what 17 and 18 do here in Revelation. They let us take a step back to look at something in greater detail. Rather than looking at the judgment as an overall chronology of what God is doing, we're going to be taking a closer look at what's being judged, specifically what's being judged, and that is the kingdom of the Antichrist, referred to collectively as Babylon. And so chapter 17 specifically is going to deal with what's called religious Babylon, the one world religious system. And then chapter 18, when we get there, it's going to be dealing with political Babylon, the governmental system, the economic system that is existent on the earth during the tribulation period. But these chapters together both detail the development and the destruction of both of these things. And so this morning, we're going to deal with the first part of religious Babylon. But before we get into all of that, we're going to spend some time in worship. You know, we just want to praise God and keep praising God. As we've been studying through Revelation and dealing with uh, a lot of the grossness of what's to come, you know, we don't have to work very hard to just look around our world today and we see some really terrible things taking place. There's wars taking place that we're praying for. There's people dying. There's wickedness abounding. There's things like trafficking and, and organ harvesting that are just rampant around the world. And Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. And we know that his judgment will indeed fall upon the earth at one time uh, in the future, but we're not there yet. And so as we study these things, I pray that we would continue to be encouraged that God is sovereign and in control. His will, his plan, his purposes will be done even when we don't understand them. But in the process of that, we could trust him. We could trust him with our lives. We could trust him with um, everything. And we know that his will is going to come to pass. In the meantime, we want to be people that are about preaching the gospel and seeing people come to, come to know him, come to be saved before his judgment falls upon this earth. But with that, we're going to worship him and praise him for a moment. Join me in prayer as we get started. Father, we love you. We're so grateful, God, for who you are and what you've done. Lord, we know that we live in a world that is increasingly, um, I won't even say secular, Lord, because, God, there is a movement upon the earth right now where people are becoming spiritual Again, spiritual in a fresh new way, but Lord, all of this spirituality is all about saying you, Jesus Christ, are not God, that you are not the way, the truth, and the life, that you are not the hope and the salvation, but that it's in other things. It's in man's ideas and man's expressions and man's ways, Lord, and God, we know it's just a part of what's to come as we get closer to the end times. Lord, we want to take a moment before we study your word this morning to just focus on who you are, to think about your glory, and to praise your holy name for it, because God, you are God Almighty. You are worthy of all praise. We love you. We thank you. And it is in your name, Jesus Christ, we pray this morning. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 17. Looking at the fall of Babylon through these two chapters, we're going to be looking at the first six verses today. I was trying to get through the whole chapter in one shot, and then uh, when I was on verse five on page six of my notes, I realized that was not going to happen. So uh, we're going to be breaking this into a part one and part two this week. We're going to be looking at the actual vision that John gets about this uh, vision of Babylon. And then next week, we'll be dealing with the interpretation of that vision that the angel gives to John. And so uh, Babylon, this, this name, this, this thing called Babylon, it is a name that is used to refer to Several different things throughout Scripture, both physical and metaphorical, 
Obviously, Babylon was an actual literal city. We know that. Babylon was the name of an actual literal empire in history. It's also used to refer to a type of system or a type of mentality or a type of world system. And we know through our study of Revelation that in the future, I believe there is going to be a rebuilt literal city of Babylon. Um, I believe that Babylon also refers to this one world global government that will be in place during the tribulation period. And I believe it also refers to the system, the socioeconomical system that's going to exist that the Antichrist is going to put into place as he enforces uh, a mark and and controls uh, the economy and all that type of stuff. But the concept of Babylon scripturally, it's much greater than just a city. It's much greater than even the kingdom of the Antichrist. The, the, the concept of Babylon, scripturally, is a concept that is associated with idolatry, blasphemy, rebellion, and persecution and oppression of God's people. The idea of Babylon is uh, inclusive of everything that stands against God. So when you think of the term Babylon, it's inclusive of the idea of everything that stands against God or everything that is presented as instead of God, which is the definition of humanism. Babylon, scripturally, is the symbol of human civilization with all its pomp and circumstance and its own organized opposition to God. It's the sum total of pagan culture. The social, intellectual, commercial, political, and religious culture that stands against God. Babylon is the essence of evil and pagan opposition to Jesus Christ specifically as Lord and Savior of the world. Babylon is a symbol for the collective rebellion against God in all forms and every form. And Babylon is, is really the, the universal or the worldwide system of unbelief and idolatry and apostasy that opposes the people of God and persecutes the people of God. Now, Babylon has a variety of of features and expressions throughout Scripture, but the two most prominent expressions of Babylon as, as a concept and an ideology is its religious expression and its political embodiment. As I said, Revelation 17 is a picture of the religious embodiment of Babylon, and it is presented to us in this vision as a notorious prostitute riding a scarlet beast, which is then the political embodiment of Babylon. And we'll talk through these as we go through these chapters. So uh, Revelation chapter 17 uh, specifically details the rise and fall of religious Babylon. Okay, and when I say religious Babylon, I'm, all, I'm referring to the one world religious system that we will see during the tribulation period upon the earth. Now, religious Babylon is simply another example of Satan's attempt to counterfeit everything God does. We've seen that numerous times throughout Revelation already as, as Satan has tried to counterfeit the Trinity, where we have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Godhead and the Holy Trinity, and Satan has tried to create his own counterfeit version, presenting himself in the place of the Father and the Antichrist in the place of Christ and the false prophet in the place of the Holy Spirit who points back. 
We've seen his counterfeit worship as he's getting the whole world to gather together worshiping him as God. We've even seen counterfeit miracles that have been exercised by the enemy. And then, of course, throughout the history of man, we've seen false religion after false religion after false religion presented as mockeries of what is the true faith about uh, worship of the true God and his son, Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may be familiar with a quote made by Karl Marx years ago. It's a pretty famous quote, and it says, religion is the opiate of the masses. This is what Karl Marx presented, and he said that because in his own studies, he discovered that mankind is incurably drawn or driven to worship something, somehow, in some way. Now, I would amend his statement to say false religion is the opiate of the masses, because there is a truth that when it comes to mankind and humanity, if man will not bow down and worship the one true holy God Almighty that has presented himself to mankind, then they will end up devising their own method, their own system, their own God, and they will worship at the altar of that false religion. So the system we're about to read about here, um, it's an ecumenical combination of everything the world will buy into. It's a melting pot, an amalgamation of religious ideas and religious philosophies and religious practices that all have a common thread in them. The common thread is that they all reject the true God, but they exalt man's false ideas about God in all its blasphemous forms. This religious system is called here in chapter 17, Babylon the Great, represented as a prostitute. And so as we study through these first six verses, we're going to see what that means, why she's represented as a prostitute. We're also going to see where the roots of this system are um, and the scope of influence that this system is going to have upon the earth. And the next time when we get together and continue the study, we're going to look at the fall of this system, which I believe takes place right at the midpoint of tribulation because this worldwide religious system is replaced at the midpoint of tribulation with a direct and enforced worship of none other than Satan himself, where there is a forced worship of the beast enforced by the false prophet and the image of the beast. And so we're going to see the fall of this precursor religious system, if you will, its ultimate ruin and destruction when Jesus Christ returns. And so um, we're going to be jumping around the chapter a little bit here, so uh, please buckle up and hang on. But read with me in Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. It says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. So we know that it's John the Apostle who has been given this vision. He is the one that has seen all of these things we have been studying and writing it down. And as John has just seen what was the, the, the end of the chronology of the seven-year tribulation period, as he saw the seventh bowl of, of wrath finally poured out upon the earth, the angel now says, hey, now, now come, I want to show you something else in more detail. I want to take a look, if you will, at really what is the final end in the judgment of this system called Babylon. So he's being called by this angel to take a look at what is being judged. We saw the judgment itself, but now what is being judged in a broad sense? And what he is looking at here is described for us as a notorious prostitute. A woman who is described as a notorious prostitute, as we will see shortly, who represents a false religious system that is on the earth during the end times. 
Now, this false religious system is called a prostitute three different times, and one time is called the mother of prostitutes. And so you can imagine that as God is describing this, um, or John is describing what God is showing him, it's not presented in a very flattering way. Um, you might think, what's the idea with prostitute, right? Some of you may be familiar that in uh, more traditional translations, this uh, woman here was called the whore of Babylon, right? Um, we understand what that word prostitute means. At least we should understand what that word prostitute means. Um, on one hand, it refers to a woman or a person who exchanges sex for money, right? Um, they've been called hookers. They've been called all kinds of different words um, over throughout history. But this word here in the Greek also means to devote to corrupt or unworthy purposes. So you might have someone who has a skill and, and they prostitute their skill to corrupt purposes, right? They're prostituting their ability. Um, but it's an interesting word choice and, and all that because there is a big push today. I don't know if any of you are aware of you've seen it, but there's a big push in the world today to take the negative connotations out of the word prostitute, to, to turn that word into something positive, right? Um, there's even a big push where people that are engaged in, the, in this world say, no, 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 don't, don't, don't say I'm a prostitute, say I'm a sex worker, right? Because they want to normalize the, 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 the perversion of, of what is done within these, these, the concepts of, of prostitution. And so there's this big push in the world to destigmatize this idea of, of what a prostitute is. But biblically, the word here carries its full um, connotation and its full meaning. Now, biblically, prostitution always symbolizes idolatry. It symbolizes false worship, okay? So when you see the idea of prostitution in the Bible, um, it's usually connected to the idea of someone devoting their affections, devoting their, uh, de um, uh, devoting their worship to anything but God. So when someone is giving their, their all, right, they're giving the deepest parts of themselves, they're giving the most intimate parts of themselves in worship, when they're, doing, when they're giving that to anything but God, it's looked at as prostitution in the Bible. So whenever God's people turned from him, they were labeled as being in prostitution or committing prostitution. When any group of people worships anything other than God, it's pictured in Scripture as prostitution or a more traditional word, harlotry. Now, there's many scriptures to back this up, but I just want to share a couple not notable ones with you. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6, it says this. In the days of King Josiah, the Lord asked me, Have you seen what unfaithful Israel has done? She has ascended every high hill and gone under every green tree to prostitute herself there. Now, some of the details of what was taking place during those times is that there would be these groves of trees up on hills, and what they would do is they would go up into these groves, and they would uh, engage in false worship. They would carve statues out of the tree trunks. They would carve statues out of stones, and they would set up these kind of like worship areas up in the hills. Now, just a few verses later in Jeremiah 3, 9, it says, she, speaking of Israel, defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. So what you see there in Jeremiah 3.6 and Jeremiah 3.9 is that being unfaithful is connected to the idea of prostitution, and prostitution is connected to the idea of adultery. And we understand what those terms are. Now, 
Um, it's not referring to any type of weird, twisted, physical intimacy with trees and rocks. All right? That's not what it's referring to here. The idea is the spiritual intimacy that Israel was engaging in. It's speaking of, of commitment and devotion and adoration and, and love. Really, all that worship is being given to anything else but the one who deserves it. Being given to anything else but God, our creator. And so that's the idea of the unfaithfulness, being connected to prostitution, being connected then all the way to adultery. It's like cheating on God when we give our adoration and our worship to anything but him. Hosea was a whole book. I don't know if you've ever read Hosea. It's a whole book devoted to the concept, the metaphor of an unfaithful wife one who would play the harlot, it says. And, and this book is a, is a prophecy given to the nation of Israel as God is, is desperately trying to draw his people Israel back to himself. He's like, look, come back home. Come back into the relationship. Come back to me where, where we are safe and where you are safe. Come back in devotion. Bring your worship back to me. We see in this book that Israel is, is presented as going out over and over again to go worship other gods. And the metaphor there is as an unfaithful wife who is prostituting herself. Although that she is supposed to be in relationship with her husband, she goes out sleeping with other people. And so the idea there is this spiritual intimacy. And so here in Revelation, we see this, this religious system presented as a notorious prostitute. And that word notorious is interesting because it means exceedingly great or surprising in its magnitude. And so, again, this religious system, personified as a woman here, surprisingly great in her unfaithfulness. Super cheater. Dirty girl. Whatever term you want to use, right? Um, just foul in her unfaithfulness. And so, this notorious prostitute, she represents a system that will be upon the earth, a religious system that will be upon the earth during that time that claims to be spiritual, that claims to be connected to God, that claims to have the secrets of what real religion is all about, but like a prostitute, is actually unfaithful to the true God, the true creator. And it tells us here in these verses that her sin is sexual immorality. Again, this is metaphorical. Sexual immorality is also the word fornication in other translations. Again, it's the picture of giving away the most intimate thing, the most intimate part of you to someone who doesn't deserve it, to someone who it doesn't belong to. It's this idea, um, like fornication. We understand that. Fornication is the idea of engaging in sexual intimacy outside of marriage, right? Biblically, we understand that the intimacy of sexual contact is between a husband and a wife. That is where that is reserved for. It's not supposed to be engaged in outside of the covenant of marriage. And so fornication um, connects, uh, or biblically, fornication is strongly connected to idolatry and worship of false gods. James even did this in the New Testament. He connected the idea of adultery to spiritual unfaithfulness to God. In James chapter 4, verse 4, what does he say here? You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. So friendship with the world connected to being adulterous. He said, so whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. In other words, you can't have an affair with the world, is what James is getting at there. You can't 
turn from God, run out on Jesus, and put other things as the focus, the object of your commitment and your affections and your worship. And so this woman here in Revelation um, 17 represents a whole world worship system that does exactly that. We will devote our attention and our adoration and our worship to everything but God. Everything but God, and she is judged for it. So where does this system come from, though? Where does this idea come from? What is the Bible telling us about it? If we jump to verse 5 in chapter 17, we see as John is seeing this woman, it says, on her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. So on her forehead was written a name. It was common in ancient times, especially during the first century, that in all of the uh, uh, false temples that would have um, uh, sex and, and all of that as a part of their religious expression, they would have temple prostitutes, and the temple prostitutes would typically wear these headbands that had their name on them. Um, and so he's seeing the same type of thing here as this prostitute has a name written on her forehead. But it says a mystery. There's a mystery here that it's referring to. Now, some people look at that word and they go, the mystery, what it's referring to is, is the idea that there is something that is known, unknown to us, known to God, that will be revealed in the future, right? That's how some people read this word. Um, but the Greek word has a little bit of a, of a more specific, deep idea to it. What the word literally means is secret things of God or the private counsel of God. It's the idea here that the word mystery is, this is what God really thinks of this thing. That's the idea of this word mystery. So the name of this woman, as John is seeing this vision written on her forehead, is as God sees her. As God knows her to be. It's his perspective, his understanding of who or what this system is. And so when we ask the question, how does God see mankind's humanistic attempts at worship? Well, let's look at it. He calls our first Babylon the Great. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this isn't to be confused with a literal physical city um, of Babylon that existed in Iraq at the time. That city is being rebuilt, incidentally. Um, and, and as a city, yeah, Babylon holds uh, a very significant place in Scripture. When it comes to cities named in Scripture, Babylon is mentioned 287 times throughout all of Scripture. The only city that is mentioned by name more than Babylon is Jerusalem. So it's a prominent place here. But in the Jewish mind, according to the Jewish mind, Babylon um, as a city, as an empire, again, this is where the Jews were held in captivity, right? Babylon as an idea represented all the evil and embodiment of cruelty. It represented everything that stood against God. It represented lasting and um, uh, perpetual sin, carnality, lust, and greed. And so anytime you have a, a group of people, you have a city, an empire, uh, an ideology that is characterized by false religions about presenting religious adoration to anything other than God, it's a Babylon. Does that make sense? All right, cool. <laughs> um, and, and the reason Babylon is representative of all these things is because the roots of Babylon. And so we're going to take a little history journey here back to Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis chapter 10, we are introduced to a character on the stage of history named Nimrod the Hunter. He was a very fierce and great leader. 
He was a fourth generation from Noah. His grandfather was Ham, who was the wicked son of Noah. This is Nimrod's uh, genealogy here. So after the flood happened, God told Noah and his sons, and he told the people, go scatter, fill the earth, right? Multiply across the earth. And so as you read through Genesis 10 or through the early parts of Genesis, you'll see that the people, after the floodwaters receded, it says they migrated east and they found this, this valley called the land of Shinar. And it was there in the land of Shinar that the people started going, hmm, maybe we don't want to do what God is telling us to do. Because although God told the people, scatter throughout the whole earth, what we find is that some got to this valley of Shinar and they didn't scatter. Instead, they clung together and they started forming tribes and clans and, and groups. And then when we get to Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, we find this. It says, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us build ourselves a city, a political, social, social economic center, and a tower with its top in the sky, a religious system. Let's make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. And so what we see there in Genesis 11 is God said, scatter, and these people said, nah, we're going to do our own thing. You said scatter, Lord, but instead of scattering, we're going to build a political system, a city, and we're going to build a religious system, this tower that's going to reach to the sky, and we're going to do our own thing. And so this city that is founded here was the city founded on rebellion against God. Now, there's nothing wrong with building cities, right? But look at their philosophy. Let's build ourselves a city. Let's make a name for ourselves. So the idea of these people back in Genesis, in, in the early times of Genesis, is that let's live our life without God. We don't need him. We can govern ourselves. We don't like worship as he tells us to. We're going to create our own worship system. And so this is the first city built on humanism. This is the first city that was built to exalt man's values and man's wants above God. And so they built this city, and like I said, they were also a religious system. And we get that because it says, let's build a tower with its top in the sky. That word sky there literally means the heavens. The word in the original language means where God lives. So the idea here, and that tower, of course, we know it as the Tower of Babel, right? That's that famous story. We see that the people here recognize their need for spiritual connection to the divine but they sought to fulfill it on their own terms. They recognized their need to be connected to their creator, but they said, we're going to get there according to our plan, our way, our will. And Nimrod led this group, led this cult, led this false counterfeit faith that was opposed to God. Now, the roots of all of this, the reason I share all this is, is archaeology and stuff, archaeology have found a lot of ancient documents back to this time, and they have found documents that prove that Nimrod existed, but what they've also found out is that this man, Nimrod, who led this cult, cult that said, we're going to create a system that, that doesn't have God involved, and we're going to create our own system, he had a wife named Semiramis, and his wife bore a son named Tammuz. Now, according to legend, his wife Tammuz said that I got pregnant, not by being with my husband, but a sunbeam shone from the sky, and the sunbeam shone on my belly, and boom, pregnant. 
And then when she gave birth to this son, he was considered the savior of the world because of his divine origins. Well, as her son Tammuz grew up in his teenage years, I believe it was, he was gored by a wild boar playing outside one day, and he died. Well, gosh, that's really going to damage the my son's God thing, right? He's, he's dead. And so Tammuz, um, to perpetrate the ruse here, told a story that for 40 days she wept and grieved over her dead son. For 40 days. And at the end of 40 days, her dead son rose from the dead. Sound familiar? Some people look at this and they go, this is the origins of Lent, the 40 days before Easter where we grieve leading up to the resurrection, right? Now, there are people that look at this stuff and go, oh, look, these legends existed all the way back in the past, and that's, you know, just Christianity co-opted all of these things. I believe Satan is intelligent, and I believe Satan knew from what God told him in the garden that there will be a descendant of the seed of Adam and Eve come to crush your head. And so all the way back in the beginning here in Genesis, I believe Satan was already propagating a false counterfeit version of what would come to be true upon the earth. And so he set up his own version of a virgin-born savior of the world who died and rose again. Now, back in the Babylonian times, because again, where the Tower of Babel was, this city that grew up there was called Babylon. And the worship of Semiramis and Tammuz grew there. And then eventually people did scatter from there. Because you remember the story of Tower and Babel, right? God was like, well, they're going to build a tower to the earth. These people got a problem. Boom. Changed everybody's language. No Duolingo at that time. Everybody's like, I can't understand what you're saying. I don't understand your language. I don't understand mine. And so people naturally went, ah, peace out. And they scattered. So God scattered the people by confusing the languages of the world. But as they scattered, this worship of Simuramis and Tammuz went with them. And so after the Tower of Babel situation, after the city of Babylon there, as people scattered, the worship of this woman and her son um, went with them. She became known as the Queen of Heaven and we see that actually referenced in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 18, where it says, The sons gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. So this Babylonian worship permeated out through the cultures. And we know it permeated out through the cultures because historians and archaeologists have tracked that, that as the people scattered, this worship of this mother and this son just simply changed names. When people got to Nineveh, Semiramis became Ishtar, who had a son named Tammuz. In the Phoenician cultures, Semiramis became Ashtoreth, who had a son named Baal. We read a lot about that in the Old Testament. In Egypt, Semiramis became Isis, who had a son named Osiris. By the time we get to the Greek cultures, Semiramis was now Aphrodite with her son Eris. By the time we get to the Roman cultures, Semiramis had become Venus with her son Cupid. Now, we do know that by the time the Roman Empire collapsed, all of this false Roman worship collapsed with it. And we don't see, you know, this type of worship today necessarily. But remember, during the tribulation period, as this new one world government is put back together, a lot of people refer to it as a revived Roman Empire. And so we see these roots going all the way back that John is seeing a future religious system that is called a notorious prostitute mothering false religious systems whose roots lie all the way back in Babel, all the way back in ancient Babylon, and the false instead of God worship that started way back then. We don't want God's way. We're going to create a different system that suits our needs. 
And we're going to see that this idea that has been inside mankind the whole time is going to finally fully blossom during the tribulation period. Now, he calls her there not just Babylon the Great, but he calls her the mother of prostitutes. That idea there is that this Babylonian false system of worship is really the basis of all false religions. You know, this alternative to God concept, this instead of Jesus mindset has spawned every false religion that exists in the world. The whole idea is that it's not the truth, it's this counterfeit version. And that's the basis of every false religion. They all have the same basic premise, anything but Jesus, anything but God's truth. Their premise is we will get to heaven. We will get to heaven, but not through Jesus, not through God, not through his truth found in his word. We will get there through our own ways. And during the tribulation period, all of these false religions are come back home to mama prostitute. And they're all going to gather together and coexist under this huge umbrella that will accommodate everything that everyone has ever wanted. Will accommodate every concept except biblical Jesus. Except genuine Christianity. And yes, this will even include those that are on the earth today that insist they are true Christians. But when you analyze their theology, you find out very quickly that they're a perverted, apostate, false form of Christianity. And so, back to verse 1, we're going to see the scope of this system. So if we go back to verse 1, it tells us that this notorious prostitute is seated on many waters, all right? Um, Four times in Revelation chapter 17, this prostitute is described as sitting, okay? She's sitting on many waters. We're going to see that she is sitting upon the scarlet beast. Um, the, The idea of sitting here in this word speaks of enthronement. It speaks of rulership. It speaks of influence, if you will. Later on, when we get to Revelation chapter 18, Babylon is personified there still, and it says, she says, I sit as a queen, right? So it's this idea of influence and power. And so when it says that this notorious prostitute is seated on many waters, um, we don't have to really struggle with interpreting this because later on in Revelation 17 verse 15, the angel actually interprets this for us. So this is what the angel says. The waters you saw where the prostitute was seated, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Now, you should know that that phrase, we've seen it a few times in Revelation already. Every time we see this phrase, peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages, it's a broad way to just refer to all the peoples of the earth, all of the nations of the earth. And so when it says that she is seated on many waters, it's referring to the global cross-culture influence of this false religious system that's going to happen during the end times. Why is that important? Because the idea is that she is going to be her, this false religious system, is going to include religions from every culture. And you think, well, how is this culture's religion going to get along with this culture's religion? I don't know exactly, but it's going to happen. How is, how is Islam going to get along with Buddhism? And how are they going to get along with Hinduism and Taoism and Confucianism and, and, and Mormonism? And, and all, how are they all? Getting, they're going to get together somehow. They're going to unify in some way. And that's what it means by her being seated. She has influence over the peoples of the earth. And this idea is all the peoples and their faith systems. So regardless of geopolitical boundaries, regardless of cultural distinctions, they are brought together. 
Now, there's also some alliance or some influence over the beast for a time because um, what we're going to read here in a moment, the angel, you know, starts out here and says, John, look, come, I'm going I'm to show you the judgment of this notorious prostitute. And, and again, we'll deal with that next time. And so John is carried into the wilderness, verse 3. It says he is carried, uh, carried away in the spirit into the wilderness to then see the actual full description of this prostitute riding the beast. Now, the idea of wilderness there, that's a callback to Revelation chapter 12. If you remember there, it tells us that God um, took his people represented as the woman Right, took her from, uh, from Satan's destructive plans, took her out into the wilderness to protect her. And so John being carried by the Spirit into the wilderness here could be a, uh, <coughs> excuse me, a reference to John being taken to a place of safety, specifically out of the reach, the allure, the attraction of this um, notorious prostitute so that he could see the vision he's about to see more accurately. He could see the vision... Um, accurately enough so he could testify truthfully to the character of this false religious system. It's just a picture of how attractive it's going to be, of how it's going to make sense to most people that, of course, wow, why didn't we ever think about that? Of course, the Jews and the Muslims could both coexist on the Temple Mount. Duh, why didn't we ever think of that, right? It's going to be a system that is just so attractive to people. And I think John is specifically pulled to a place where he's like, okay, I want you to look at it without being influenced by it. Um, that's just an interpretation of mine. But verse 3, it goes on to describe for us what John saw. And he says, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. So now we see the woman sitting on the scarlet beast. And you're like, well, is she sitting on the many waters or is she sitting on the scarlet beast, right? Which is it? Well, if you remember from Revelation uh, 13, the description here of this beast is almost verbatim. It's almost exactly the same. And so we're going to discuss more about the beast when we get to the interpretation that the angel gives. But in Revelation 13, the beast we know is symbolic. I believe the beast is symbolic of two things, the Antichrist individually and also symbolic of the one world government system that he leads. They're both referred to as the beast. So this beast here, I believe, is referring to the political system that the Antichrist will be leading, and the idea that this beast is scarlet is just connecting it to the great fiery red dragon, so it's under the control of Satan, and so on and so forth. But again, remember, the idea of this woman being seated is the idea of enthronement or rulership or influence. So what does that tell us? One, that this global government system which is put together and led by the Antichrist, initially, at the beginning point, the first three and a half years of the tribulation system, initially supports this false religious system, props up this global religious system, is somehow um, um, helping it attain its influence and power, and then the religious system itself then has influence over the peoples of the earth. So that's the idea that she's sitting on the many waters, and she's sitting on this beast. But the idea of her sitting on the beast could also indicate that she is exerting some type of control over the world uh, government system, that she has some type of influence on it, at least initially, kind of like a rider on a horse, right? The rider on the horse kind of controls the amount. It could indicate that initially, specifically during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, that the world is primarily looking to this false religious system for help and hope rather than the Antichrist and his governmental system. 
Now, the Antichrist is involved in propping it up and stuff, but there's this picture here that as the heavens and the earth start falling apart during tribulation, and we looked at that in the seals, right? We looked at that in the trumpets. As everything is just, just, just falling apart worldwide, people's hearts, it tells us in Revelation, are failing them, that they're being overcome with fear and hopelessness during the first half of the tribulation period. And, and, and what happens is that people are going to get spiritual, which is a fairly common thing on the earth. You guys ever notice that you know, when things get really bad, people start showing up to church more? When things get really, really, really bad, people start getting a little more spiritual, and they start grasping for things, right? When things get to that point where they're like, oh, I can't explain or understand what's going on, they start to entertain the idea of the supernatural. I think that's what's going to happen during tribulation period as things are falling apart. People are going to get really spiritual, and that's that worldwide revival I was talking about in the beginning. And so they might have by this point or at least begun to lose hope in their trust in politics, that's already happening on our earth today, especially in our country. We're divided like we've never been before, right? One half of the aisle goes, we have to vote. And the other half goes, why? It's rigged. And the other half, you know, and it's like, and we just, people are losing hope in the political process. For a long time, people, not just in our country, in multiple countries, are like, who cares who you vote for? They're all corrupt, right? You have these types of ideas that are permeating our culture. And please don't misunderstand me. I believe that we have a civic duty to be involved. I believe we should vote. I believe we should be a part of that. That's my opinion, all right? But, but I believe that's an accurate call for the Christian, but I'm not here to get into that topic right now. But the idea is that during this time, people have lost hope. They've lost their trust in the political system to fix the errors of the world. They've lost hope in the economic system, right? We're experiencing that right now. I'm just, I'm just baffled that week by week, the not a recession keeps getting worse as a not a recession. And it's like, how much worse is it going to get before people go, okay, we're in a recession, right? You know, do interest rates have to get to like 85% before someone goes, hey, there's a problem, right? Again, another soapbox I don't have time to get onto. Okay. Um, but as people lose their trust and their hope in politics and economics, they're going to turn back to religion in mass. But the problem is, is which one? This religion hates this religion, hates this religion. Which one do we turn to? And suddenly there's going to be a way to unify all of them. There's going to be a way to unify all the religions, make them work to, together. There's going to be a way to, to give it all meaning beyond what's right in front of him. But it's going to give meaning in a way that still ultimately is according to man's own desires and man's own values and man's own pursuits. And the Antichrist is going to go along with this at first. And he's going to prop this up. Now, at the midpoint, we're going to see next week, as we deal with the fall of this system, we're going to see that when we get to the midpoint of tribulation, he stops supporting this. No, all the faiths are true and says, no, 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 worship me, I'm God. But this one world religion is going to be propped up supporting the idea that, of course, all religions lead to God except Jesus. So, this religious system, it's going to have incredible influence over the entire world for a time, um, that's what we see by her sitting on many waters, right? Verse 2, it tells us that the kings of the earth, it's referring to governmental leadership and those who live on the earth. 
It tells us commit sexual immorality with her. It tells us they get drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. We know that that sexual immorality, that fornication is idolatry, false worship. And so we see the idea here is that the, everybody, from the leaders of governments all the way down, are going to be intoxicated with what this one world religious system brings, and they overindulge in it. That's the idea of drunkenness. So verse 4. What did John see specifically? And we'll go through these pretty quick. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with everything detestable and with the impurities of her prostitution. The idea of gold or purple and scarlet, these are colors of splendor, colors of magnificence and power. In ancient times, to, to get a purple-colored cloth, or a scarlet-colored cloth. Both of those were very expensive colors, so it was very expensive fabrics to get. The gold and the jewels and the pearls, these are, these are items of luxury and, and items of opulence. And so, again, this is where we get the idea that this religious system is going to be very attractive, very appealing. It's going to have great power and influence over people. And, and, and this system is likely going to promise by appearance, if you will, that, yeah, you know, you 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 toe the line with this one world religion, you'll get everything you've ever wanted. In my head, it sounds much like the prosperity gospel of today. Look at me, look at my expensive watch. I don't have an expensive watch, by the way, but you know, look, look, at, my, look at my Nolex, right? Um, look, at my, look at my expensive suit or whatever, right? And you have these people even in today's world that are like, look, if you have the faith I have, by giving me all your money, you'll have what I have. And it's, it's false. It's a false gospel, Right? This whole religious system is going to be like that. Like, wow, I could have what, what it promises me to have if I just do what it says and worship the way it tells me to. And again, it's this idea of this self-exalting religion. Because this everything everybody's ever wanted, well, God defines it right here. What's in the cup? Everything detestable with the impurities of her prostitution. That's how God sees self-exalting religion. It's detestable. It's impure. And so one of the things that will unify the world, unify all these faiths and people under this, um, it's persecution of those who profess Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. Then I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. And so this woman, this false religious system, not only persecutes believers, but revels in it. She's Drunk with the blood of the saints. Same word. This system overindulges in the persecution of those who profess Jesus. And that phrase there, the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses to Jesus, the idea of that is, is the persecution is more than just harassment. It's going to go far beyond, oh, nope, you can't bake a cake. Nope, you can't have a flower shop. It's going to go far beyond, you can't work here. It's going to go far beyond, you know, we're going to fire you. It's going to go so far to the point where it's actual harm being done to people, where people are getting hurt, killed. We already read about martyrs during the tribulation period. We read about people losing their head over their belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so her alliance with, with the beast, her riding the beast, and her alliance with the world in leading the populations, it's ultimately an alliance against God's people, which we've seen through Revelation over and over, right? Satan's goal. I hate God. I hate his people. I want to destroy them. I don't care if they're Jews or Gentiles. I want them all dead. 
That's really what this is all about. Now, we see precursors or the precondition of this in the world today, at least I do. Um, we see it in, in abortion, right? And again, I don't mean to condemn anybody. If you've had an abortion and, and you've said, God, I, I repent of that, you're forgiven, okay? Know that. Please know that. But the, the concept of abortion in our world today is that if a life is inconvenient, just kill it. Just get rid of it, right? Um, we see that in abuses that take place in senior care facilities today. This life is meaningless. This life is a hindrance. And so it, it, people will, and you go, where does, where does this kind of thinking stop? Where does this kind of thinking stop? Well, like I said, I believe it's a societal preconditioning to get people to accept and normalize that any life that is deemed unwanted, any life that is deemed unproductive or uncooperative with the masses, any life that is in the way with what we want to do should be removed. Any life. And with that mindset, when the world is under the sway of this notorious prostitute, when the world is under the sway of the beast, those who are hindrances to the self-exalting freedoms that mankind wants to have, those fundamental believers that are always preaching about Jesus, the worldwide mindset's going to be, can we just remove them? Can we just kill them? And we see that the people are going to be excited about that because we saw that when the two witnesses were murdered in Jerusalem at the midpoint of tribulation, their bodies were left to rot on the streets and the entire world celebrated. The world from the top down is just going to be glad to overindulge in that kind of persecution. And so I think that is why John is greatly astonished here, right? He is greatly astonished. I mean, at the gleeful brutality in the name of religion, in the name of connecting to God, it's going to be this, this, this horrible brutality based upon false truths about false gods. But even more so than that, I mean, John has already seen from chapter 13, John already was introduced to the beast. He saw that the time is coming where the entire world is going to worship the beast and worship the Antichrist. But now he's, he's seen something that, 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 that is before that worship, something that leads up to that open satanic worship of the Antichrist. He sees this woman sitting on top of the beast, controlling it, directing it, influencing it, intoxicating the world with the detestable things of the earth. And they're clearly detestable, and yet mankind thinks it's good and right and moral and proper and spiritual, and they think it's going to lead to our exaltation and how wrong they are, how wrong they will be, and how sad will be their fall. Next week, we're going to look at the angel's interpretation of this vision and get into some more details about the beast and what it all means. The angel goes on to, to describe to John more about this notorious prostitute and the scarlet beast that she is riding. And we're going to see how this one world religion really prepares the way for what Satan has been after all along. A world that worships him and him alone. A world that will worship him in direct, intentional, overt opposition to God Almighty and his son, Jesus Christ. You know, knowing the truth... It's paramount to ours resisting the deceptions that the world brings. There are so many people deceived in our world today. There are so many people in, in pursuit of religion, pursuit of some connection to the divine. They're, they're caught up in all kinds of false things. 
And I think sometimes we as the church can get too comfortable for that. Well, you believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. And that's not the call of the church. The call of the church is to lovingly, kindly, boldly, and confidently go shine a light on falsehood. There's so many books throughout the New Testament that deal directly with, hey, here's how to identify false teaching. (laughs) Here's how to respond to false teachers, right? Um, We're called to know the truth, and, and there's much out there that appears truthful enough that it sways the masses. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Satan has been at work since all the way back in Babylon. He has been at work to set up counterfeits, to deceive, to destroy, to ruin lives. And the many false religions in the world today, they all point to the same thing. They all point to the same thing. They say Jesus is not God Almighty. They say that he is not God in the flesh. They say that he is not the savior of the world. But we who know him, we know the truth. We've experienced a change that people cannot explain. And knowing the truth means that we should live the truth. And we should be people who share that truth, that truth, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what we're called to be about, that we would be part of rescuing those that are trapped in the humanistic ideas of religious Babylon. I believe the roots of this exist today. I believe it's going to continue to grow and flourish to the end times. We have the truth. We have the hope. Let's be people who share that now, that we would save those from the judgment to come, but that we would be a, a people of such reputation that even when God would take us from this earth prior to pouring out his wrath upon the earth, the reputation of the people at our church and every church worldwide would be such that people would go, maybe they were right about Jesus. Maybe I should turn to him. Maybe I should give my life to him because nothing else seems to be working right. He is the truth. He is the hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you. Lord, it's been said there's nothing new under the sun. Your servant said that in your own word, God. Mankind is seeking and has always been seeking that which would bring glory. Sadly, Lord, so many are seeking that which will bring glory to themselves and not that which will bring glory to their Creator. And Lord, we know the time is coming where you're going to judge that. Lord, it's within the spirit of man due to the fall and due to sin for us to say we don't need God to live like the people under Nimrod and say, you know what, we're going to create our own system. We're going to govern ourselves. We're going to create our own faith and our own religion. And yet, Lord, we know that that is all self-exalting and leads nowhere except to judgment. God, we pray for the world we live in today, God. We pray your spirit would go forth and change hearts, change minds. We pray for those that are trapped into the false religions and false ideas, things that have their root in religious Babylon. God, we pray you'd give us opportunity to share with them, to hand them a track, to tell them about Jesus, to converse with them in a loving way, God, that they would come to know the truth. But at the same time, Lord, we know that there are so many in this world that are going to reject you to the very end. 
that are led and guided and influenced by Satan that are going to continue to do horrible things. And we trust you in all of that, Lord. We trust your timing. But let us individually, Lord, be people that proclaim your name loud and clear. That those who are trapped in falsehoods would recognize truth. They would recognize that they're trapped in something that is a counterfeit of what is true. And that, Lord, they would just come to know you. We pray for our outreaches as a church, Lord, especially this season. There's so many trapped in darkness, Lord. They need the light. Help us introduce them to that light. God, we want them to be saved. Use us, use our church. And when the time comes, Lord, where you take our church out of this world, you take your people, your, your, your believers, God, the church of Jesus Christ out of this world, that the reputation that is left behind would be a reputation of people who knew truth, lived truth, shared truth, and that those who would be left behind would come to know truth through that witness and through that testimony. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship, guys.